So, um, and um, uh, Tony's connected to Noongar country and people of the southwest of WA in, in the 1970s. Um, Tony was forcibly removed from the care of his own family and placed uh, into Marybank Mission, formerly known as Karalap Native Settlement, where he remained for the next 15 years. And he's a stolen generation survivor and his children are descendants of the stolen generation. Um, Tony has worked in government for 28 years. Uh, he's worked for the WA Police Force, Department of Child Protection. He currently holds a leadership position, position with Parkerville children and youth care working in out-of-home care area where he ensures that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in care continue to stay connected with their culture and their family and that all staff have cultural knowledge and understanding while caring for their children. That's a big responsibility. Tony is also represented of a number of Indigenous boards and committees. He's co-chair of Bringing Them Home Committee, WA, deputy chair of WA Stolen Generation Aboriginal Corporation in WA, a committee member of Yokai addressing justice, truth-telling and truth-telling, um, and a member of the Carolup Elders, oh, chair, that's right, in partnership with Curtin. <laughs> Um, Tony is also a member of the Healing Foundation Stolen Generation Committee on a national platform. And yeah, Tony's going to, um, well, I'll be asking Tony a few questions uh, after the film that you're going to see, uh, which is about 18 minutes long. Um, but firstly, I'll introduce um, Chris Malcolm. Chris, yours is pretty long. You, you, I don't think you need to. You, do you need to read that? Sorry. You don't need to read my bio, do you? No, not necessarily. Okay. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm happy to. If, okay. Yeah. Um, a few of you know who I am. Um, director of the John Curtin Gallery. Um, been working with the Carolup Collection since it arrived from Colgate University in 2013. Uh, been working at Curtin University for 30 years and um, been in charge of the gallery for the last 14 years and working very hard for the last three years to bring the Carol Up Centre for Truth-Telling to reality. And I'm very happy to have been able to appoint Michelle as Australia's very first university-placed um, Indigenous curator of Australian First Nations art. Thank you. And not before time. <laughs> yes. Okay, so uh, I, don't, I don't believe there's any way of dimming the lights for the film, is there? No? Okay. Just so everyone squint. Chris, if you don't mind just uh, a one-minute intro to the film to provide Absolutely. some context. Sure. This, this film, 18-minute film, was commissioned in 2014 leading up to an exhibition um, that was held in 2015 which celebrated or commemorated, not really celebrated, but commemorated the centenary of the establishment of the Carolup Native Settlement. It was an exhibition that we held at the Katanning Art Gallery and this film was shown at the prelude to the launch of the, of the project. So it's introductory to the whole idea of, of the collection and history. So there will be some references to 
that specific exhibition, so it will seem a little bit dated in, in one sense, but it's a, it's a very rounded encapsulation of, of, of the history, which I will then touch on a little bit, but we're here to talk a little bit more about the Carolup Centre for Truth-Telling, which, when this exhibition was mounted in 2015, was just a dream. So I think we're cue to film. It might, maybe well, it makes sense for us to sit down and watch the film with this mob. Sure. Okay. Otherwise we'd be, be watching this mob watch the film. Yeah. <laughs> and that would seem weird. Righto, let's get off stage. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the exhibition of the Kerala Artworks, Kulak Kul Kajan, A Spiritual Return Home. The title is given to this exhibition because they are actually coming home to the place where they were created, this place here in Nyungabuja. This exhibition is being shown this year in 2015 to mark 100 years since the establishment of the Kerala Native Settlement. The artworks were done by Nyungar children of the stolen generation who were removed from their families and taken to places such as the Karalup Native Settlement. They produced artworks about Nyungar Nyiring, our worldview, our place, and it came from their heart, their souls, and their mind. These artworks that you're about to see are something very, very special. The government of the day decided it would be a good thing to bring these children from the bush camps into a central place. They were between the ages of about six to about 13 or 14. They were a very mixed group, came from all over the place. We were living on a farm out of Kojanov and one afternoon a truck pulled up where we were living. My granddad asked him what he wanted. He said, I come to pick up a Violet Smith and her children. He said, well, you can't have them. He said, that's my daughter. You can't take them. And they said, well, we are going to take them because she didn't send her kids to school, which wasn't true because we used to go to school all the time. And um, he just got hold of the two little ones because my siblings uh, were smaller than me. And he put them on the truck then they lifted me onto the back of the truck and put my mum on there, and then it just took off. The idea being that they would be educated and looked after, but it fell far from the mark. It was very frightening, you know. We'd never mixed with a lot of Aboriginal people. We were sort of a family by ourselves. To come here and see all these little Aboriginal kids we asked some of them what they were doing here and they said they were taken away from their parents and brought here to live. They said, are you living here with us? And we said, yes, we're going to live here, but we don't want to live here. And they tell us they didn't want to live here either. Dad was incarcerated in Carolup in 1917. Him and his three brothers they didn't like the place because it was um, almost like a prison. It was a very harsh place. It was bitterly cold. 
Those children had no warm clothing, they had no shoes, and in the dormitories where they were locked up at night, there was mattresses on the floor, but there was no bed linen. They had one blanket each. There was no cupboard or place that you could call your own to have anything, nothing. They had nothing. The children were in, the, in a dormitory uh, setting in Carolup with a large ablution block, the kitchen, uh, the school. They got away from Carolup. Andy, Henry, Dad, I think they were the three that, that escaped from, from uh, that escape, but they just walked out of a, a Carolup and, and hid. We had to work in the kitchen wash dishes and things like that. And then we'd go off to school. Everybody loved Mr. and Mrs. White because they were so kind and, and good to us. My dad had great compassion for them. To begin with, he couldn't get any response from the children at all until one day he said, come on, we'll go for a bushwalk. And he took the children out and he said to them, now we're just gonna have a stroll through the bush. You tell me what you see. And then he said, when he got back to the classroom, you must draw what you saw. And of course, to his amazement, they would start to draw this magnificent perspective of what they could see. Yeah, we used to go down to the bush. He'd take about six or seven girls with the boys as well, especially on the nature walks. When we went out with the boys on their walks, they weren't allowed to take paper, because when they went to the bush, they had to memorize what they saw and then bring it back to the classroom and put it on paper. That was the way that Mr. White got them to do the paintings they did. They had to sketch it in their mind and bring it back to the classroom. When Mr. White was here, the school teacher, he actually wanted the government to acknowledge what the kids were doing here. So he actually went down to Albany to see the chief protector with some artworks and he actually showed it to him and the other government officials and they didn't believe that these kids out here could actually do artwork in that style. So he actually came back in his little T-model Ford all the way back up here to, to Carolup, picked up a couple of boys, took them back down to Albany um, with paper and brush and paint and um, got them to do some artworks in front of the other officials. They absolutely blew the, the chief protector and the other officials away. When they actually came up here, there were artworks all over this wall there. It was just covered, you couldn't see the paint. They took a photo in that corner with Mr. White standing up in that corner and all the kids were down the front um, in front of them. It actually showed the government officials that the kids were doing good at school here in regard to their artwork and their education. The local people were absolutely astounded. At first they used to say, oh, but come on, Mr White, you're touching this all up. You're doing this. <laughs> he said, no, I'm not. And uh, that, But that's how it all started. Florence Rudder was a... British businesswoman who was in Perth to establish Roptimus International Chapters um, across Australia. She visited the offices of Milady, which was a local journal who had published the month before an article about the Carolup artworks. Upon seeing the colour plates in the article, she was immediately interested in visiting the site. She made her way out to the settlement, completely unannounced. She 
introduced herself to, to Noel and Lily White and who then gave her a tour of the settlement and showed her the artworks in the classroom. When Mrs Rutter was there, as she was leaving to go back to England, my dad said to her, well, look, uh, Mrs Rutter, take this collection of paintings. There was no more room on the school wall to hang them. And she said to him, look, I'll, I'll give you five pounds. And she became the self-appointed ambassador for the child artists of Kerala. She bought some of the works at that time and she took them with her when she travelled around the rest of Australasia. She took them around the world on exhibitions. She already created those ripples around the pond and these artworks are, are still creating those ripples. The extra money that she raised, she sent back to Kerala directly to Mr White to use it to buy materials for the kids and also to buy shoes and clothing for the kids because the kids were very scruffy, if not, you know, in a pretty bad way. Florence Rutter kept her journal, but she also kept all her correspondence, incoming correspondence. It's very clear from the content of those letters that they were very affectionate towards Mrs Rutter. The children, who were wards of state, as well as being minors, understood that they were engaged in a commercial activity, even as children. And they were very, very proud of that. And you've only got to read some of those letters uh, to see that. She was a divorced woman. She'd been by herself for many, many years. And she met this man, but he was a swindler. And he took all the money out of the children's trust account, but he also took all of her money as well. So she was destitute. Florence was in failing health and regrettably posted some advertisements in the printed press in London to sell the collection. Herbert Mayer was a Manhattan-based gallerist and art collector who heard about the possible sale of the collection and offered to buy the entire collection on the spot. He was a graduate of Colgate University and in the mid-1960s, Colgate were establishing their own art gallery on campus. Mr Mayer decided to donate several thousand works from his own collection and within that collection were the 122 Carroll Art drawings. Florence was broken-hearted that she had to sell her own private collection. It probably would have broke her heart to um, you know, to let him go. And in fact she died seven months later, basically of a broken heart, according to her daughter. The collection of Carol Up drawings sat quite anonymously within the storeroom for many, many years. Purely by accident in 2004, Professor Howard Morphy from the ANU in Canberra was in Colgate University in New York giving a lecture and the curator invited him down to their storeroom to show him a few objects they had in their collection that had connections to Australia. And one of these was obviously a box of drawings that was labelled, I think it was Australian children's drawings. Subsequently, within a number of weeks, there was a delegation raised from Perth, including John Stanton from the University of Western Australia, Athol Farmer and Ezard Flowers to Noongar Men, who travelled to Colgate University to officially verify the works as being Carolup artworks. That's when the story hit the headlines around the world and the very beginning of the ideas of the collection returning to Australia actually were seeded at that moment when Professor Ellen Crayley from Colgate, upon seeing just how strong the impact of seeing these artworks were to the Tununga men in particular, immediately sort of thought of the long-term plan of finally one day returning the works to Noongar country. John, myself and Ethel had no idea how these artworks were going to be in regards to all those years in those boxes. When we seen them on the table and in the boxes and still in their coverings, they looked like they were only done an hour ago. That's how vibrant and bright the colours were on these um, pieces of paper. And even the paper was in good, in good condition. 
And that all really led towards the moment when Colgate were able to offer um, to transfer the custodianship of the collection to Curtin University in 2013. So hired a car, drove to Wagen, you know, contacted Ezard and asked if he could meet with me and Mr. Wallam. And so we sat on Uncle Angus's porch and I said, we believe it's time to come home. I kind of thought that Ezard would be expecting this. I thought he knew this was happening. He told me later, he thought never in his lifetime would he see the artwork come home. That was actually a very touching surprise. When Ellen came out and told us that Colgate was gifting these artworks back, and she asked us if it was okay to go through Curtin, because Curtin is one of the major universities in WA, you know, that has um, uh, Noongar uh, students going to it. We were pleased to acknowledge that Curtin all those artworks. I discussed with them our opinion that Curtin was the right institution because of its emphasis on community outreach, the numbers of Noongar and Indigenous students at the university, and the fact that Curtin is the first and only institution of higher education in Australia that has established and implemented a strategic plan for reconciliation. All of those things were very meaningful for us at Coldgate and were part of my proposal. I feel a very a huge responsibility towards we are simply custodians of what is a very precious collection, a very precious collection to Noongar country, to Western Australia and to Australia as, as a whole. So I think as a university, we're privileged to have that role. Curtin has established a Carolup Elders Reference Group who advise us in terms of cultural matters related to the collection. We sit as an advisory group to give Curtin cultural advice in regards to what our perspective visions are based around these, these artworks. These artworks in particular um, is connected to Noongar people right through Noongar country in one form or another. Essentially what we want to do with the collection is to ensure that as many people as possible um, see the collection, uh, understand the story, uh, understand the, the, the history of the collection, that as many people as possible in Noongar people have access to, to the collection, and also that researchers um, have access to it, and that uh, we can understand more about the histories of the people involved. So the Oral Histories Project, which has been supported by Lottery West, is, is so uh, very important to that work. And there was an initial exhibition here, Heart Coming Home, in 2013 at our John Curtin Gallery, and that was very well received. Last year, we held our first Great Southern Regional Exhibition in Albany. That was very well received as well. The second major exhibition uh, of the Great Southern Regional Exhibitions will take place this year in September in Katanning. That will be very important because the artworks will actually be returning home, returning to country. It's also 100 years uh, since the establishment of the Carolot Mission. In 2015, it, it, it turns 100. And what better present to give it than to actually take these artworks back on site where they were created in the first place. Well, when the artwork came back, 
it was really exciting. That was a real positive because most of the artists had, um, well, had passed and this was something for the family or the, or the remaining family of these artists to, to have. The artworks themselves are profoundly important cultural artefacts to the Noongar community of, of Western Australia. They have uh, an incredible power um, to communicate to their, their audience, Noongar and non-Aboriginal people alike. Understanding the story of the situation where these works were created at Kalarup uh, during the Stolen Generations period in the 1940s just makes the the work's even that more compelling. It's such an important body of work to enable healing to occur within the community locally. Just seeing the deep emotional impact the artworks have on people is, is profoundly satisfying. Some of the art shows lifestyle of a traditional life. You know, Aboriginal people, families. Some of the art shows families um, by the river. And this is depicted by the Aboriginal artists. It's to me, important for non-Aboriginal students here at Curtin to see that that was the lifestyle of Aboriginal people and they can actually see it in the art. The two principal pillars of the agreement with Colgate when the works were transferred to Curtin were access and preservation. Access we're dealing with by trying to make the works accessible to as broad an audience as possible and the other key component is preservation. Where obliged through the agreement and just ethically to preserve these artworks for as long as possible for future generations. They're a lot more fragile than we ever thought they would be. Well, I'm glad I come back to see Carolop. I am really glad I come back, even though it brings back some memories of when I was here. Not a lot, but some. Some were good and some were bad. It's healing to know that, you know, if you talk about it, you, you are going through, you know, a healing process. This is something that Noongar people related to this artist or even having a connection to the family can be proud of. So there's that pride and it's something to be very proud of. These children produced artworks that linked them emotionally, physically and spiritually to their land, Noongar Buja. All Noongar people should be proud as we acknowledge and celebrate their spiritual return home. So, um, as I said, that film was a little bit dated in that, in that it was created specifically for that exhibition in Katanning. Um, while I'm speaking there, there's a series of slides that we'll just be scrolling through of artworks from the collection, as well as a few images, both of the John Curtin Gallery, as well as a couple of uh, what's referred to as artist impressions, I suppose, of what the Carol Up Centre for Truth-Telling might look like. Um, but they really are or might not look like. So, 
for the next little while, I'm going to be speaking for about 10 minutes and then I'm going to hand over to Mr. Hanson who's going to speak for about 10 minutes and then Ms. Bruin is going to interrogate both of us. Is that right? <laughs> okay. I'll be drawing out some... Uh, some truth. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, Kaya. Ngala kajit nija burabardip. Mia mia wajuk nungabuja. Kuriyea burda. I acknowledge this place, Bulabadip, the WA Museum is on Wajip Noga lands from the past, today, and in the future. And I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. The word Kerala means different things to many people. It evokes striking images of Nungabuja, landscape drawings from Aboriginal children of the stolen generations. At the Kerala State School, and this little school hidden away within the Karolup native settlement was a crucible from which a distinctive landscape art tradition emerged in the middle of last century that has captured the evocative atmosphere of Nungabuja. This tradition lives on generations later, as you can see from the work that's in the, uh, the gallery over the way that Michelle kindly spoke to us about earlier by Uncle Lance Chad. But these original artworks from the 1940s have become a powerful catalyst for bringing people together to confront and address past injustice, as well as acknowledge and celebrate cultural resilience and explore how the artworks and their existence can contribute to reconciliation and healing. After first leaving Nungabudra over 70 years ago, as you've just seen in the film, these artworks have now returned full circle to come home to become the foundation for the Carolup Centre for Truth-Telling that has been developed over the next two years within the John Curtin Gallery at Curtin University. I'm just sort of kind of cast back a little bit and just a little potted history of the last 193 years. So since 1826, Noongar people's access to traditional country steadily declined until by the turn of the 20th century, most lived sadly on the outskirts of regional towns in segregated native reserves, often in terrible conditions without reliable access to water and surviving on rudimentary government rations. Now in January 1915, to quell growing unrest amongst the townspeople of Katanning, the Noongar population on the overcrowded reserve there were forcibly marched 30 kilometres to a secluded site near the confluence of the Kalakalup Creek and the Karalup River. And from its beginnings as a makeshift campsite and ration depot, the Karalup River native settlement, as it was known then, was administered by a succession of government departments, all empowered to exercise increasing control over Noongar people through the provisions of the Aborigines Act of 1905. The Karalup settlement broadly operated in two phases. The first was a period of segregation from 1915 to 1922, when it was suddenly closed and the population forcibly removed and taken to the Moor River native settlement, which had opened in 1918. And the second, more focused, industrialised phase of assimilation, which is the period that the artworks were created, which occupied the full decade of the 1940s when the settlement's aims and impact were greatly expanded. In 1951, Carol was then transformed briefly into the Marybank Agricultural School before being taken over by the Baptist Union to become the Marybank Mission in 1952. Now, the aim of the settlement during its darkest phase in the 1940s was to effectively produce a labour force you could almost describe it as an indentured labour force, with the boys being trained to become farmhands and the girls destined to leave the settlement at the age of 14, forced into largely unpaid labour as trained domestic servants. 
just after the Second World War, the newly appointed Carroll Upstate School headmaster, Noel White, and you saw his daughter talking um, in the film there a little while ago. And their three, his wife and their three children arrived at Carroll Up in 1946. Now, when he arrived, he would not, was not able to communicate with the children at all. They'd been told that they were going to be having a male teacher arrive and that his intent was to discipline them. Now, to an Aboriginal child in the 1940s, being told that a, a, a non-Aboriginal man is going to discipline you would mean one thing. So they were terrified of this fellow. Now, after he was there for a couple of weeks, none of the children had made eye contact with him, had answered a question, there had been no engagement, no communication at all. So he was on the brink of resigning his post when he happened to come across Parnell Dempster on a Sunday afternoon, literally drawing a tree as an artist would, sitting in front of a tree doing this drawing. Now, this encounter prompted the first direct connection between teacher and any of his students. He asked Parnell whether he'd be interested in doing more drawings, and Parnell looked up and answered. And then the following morning in the classroom, the teacher announced to the entire classroom, now again, remembering that none of these children had ever looked at him before, all of a sudden, he, he suggests to them that that afternoon they're going to go for a walk out into the bush. And all of a sudden, he's got all of their attention. And then the following morning on the Tuesday, they all set about doing these drawings. And to everyone's astonish, astonishment, the children produced artworks that captured the spirit and atmosphere of the landscape with incredible visual acuity, with a great skill. And the teacher had never taught them anything about any art making or any drawing. Earlier teachers had never done that. We've got examples of drawings that these children had, had done from 1942 right through to 1945, and none of them look anything like this. So some bizarre thing happened that day when they were allowed... The kind of... when, If, if you think teachers that had been there before would ne never have dared take the children out into the bush during the day. I mean, the bush was the place that they would escape from. A lot of these children were trying to escape this place all the time. They had trackers there that would go and capture the kids in the bush and bring them back and put them in cells. So for a teacher to suddenly suggest that the whole class get up, go outside and go together out in the bush was a kind of pivot point where the children seemed to have some different sense of a relationship with their teacher. So from the first public showing in Katanning in, in October 46, the artworks consistently encountered a blend of acclaim and scepticism regarding their authorship. And the success of these young artists and the positive shift in their learning overall was actually considered, sadly, a vindication of state policies, notably the willful removal of children from their families. So in many ways, the sad irony of the children's success was that it became part of the state's propaganda instrument. The more successful the children were, the more it reinforced the state's attitude that what they were doing was right and they should sort of actually take more children from their families. Now, as the years quickly passed and the state's intentions of limiting children's prospects in adult life became more apparent to the headmaster, Noel White, this concord of purpose between the departments of Native Affairs and Education would soon shift. Noel White was actually considered a troublemaker by nurturing the children's curiosity and intervening in the training trajectories of Native Affairs, which again were just wanting to train them to become indentured labour. That would effectively deny these children opportunities that non-Aboriginal children always took for granted. So the superintendents of the settlement reacted by disrupting their education, typified by taking children out of class to undertake manual labour tasks during school hours. 
Now, the world of the children of Carolot was transformed when in 1949 Florence Rudder turned up and you saw her in the film. Now, that foundation that she um, constituted within a few days of, of visiting Carolot did enable her to set up these exhibitions right across the UK in 1950 where there were many hundreds of works sold. And so back here in WA, while that was all going on, the Department of Native Affairs maintained that the children should only be trained according to the settlement's purpose. So the fact that Noel White was um, trying to give the children a sense of, uh, of an alternative future became a huge problem and really came to a head towards the end of late, late 1950 when the school was suddenly closed. Now, the 122 works that are in the collection were actually what remained in Florence Rudder's personal possession at the end of her life, as John Stanton um, described there. And after the American Herbert Mayer had acquired the collection in 56, and as it was said in the film, he donated it to Colgate in 1966. Now, Tony and I were fortunate enough to travel to New York in April 2019, and we actually went to the gallery where these artworks were found, and we spoke to the woman who showed the box of drawings to Howard Morphy, and it was really quite a miracle that that even happened because he was on his way out of the room and she said, oh, hold on a minute, you know, before you go, what about this box over here? And she showed us exactly where the box was. Now, if she hadn't have said that to him on that day, that box would probably still be sitting on the shelf there at the Picker Art Gallery in Hamilton, New York, and nobody would know anything about the existence of these things. So this whole story is full of these amazing um, coincidences um, of people being in the right place at the right time, including the teacher. Now, after the works were discovered in 2004, Colgate University started sending people out here. They wanted to know what this was all about. They wanted to learn about Noongar culture. They wanted to learn about the stolen generations. Unbeknownst to everybody here, they had intended from the very get-go to repatriate the collection, but they did not want to mention it to anybody here in Australia until they knew it could happen. And it took them seven years of legal wrangling and changing the law of the state of New York for them to have the opportunity to repatriate the collection in, in late 2012. Which, from our perspective, is a, was a very generous act and one that Colgate themselves are very proud of. And in fact, when Tony and I were there in 2019, it was a great part of the university's 200th anniversary celebrations, the fact that they'd been able to repatriate this collection of Noongar artwork back to Noongar Buja. So the artworks you know, were soon received here in 2013 um, at the exhibition that you saw there, as well as Albany in 2014, and then, and then again in Catania in 2015. And all of this was really building up towards a sense of, well, what is Curtin gonna do with this collection? You know, this collection needs a home, it needs to, it's done this kind of regional tour, it's been shared with community out on the road, but it needed a home that would see its future being able to um, enact and enshrine the principles of the, the agreement between Colgate and Curtin University. So um, one thing that happened a few years later was that the Department of Aboriginal Affairs here discovered in a storeroom a whole collection of Carolup artworks, letters, photographs and artefacts that had been there since the 1960s. They decided that it was important to bring all this material together and donated the entire collection to Curtin University so it could be together with the artworks. Colgate University continued bringing their staff and students every year out to Noongar Buja. They spend months um, at a time here working with us and working with um, Noongar elders on country for sort of 
episodes of deep cultural immersion. So there's hundreds of students who graduates from Colgate University in New York who have gone away with a really deep understanding of this history and this culture, much deeper than their counterparts who are studying here at Curtin and throughout Perth. We've worked with local indigenous organisations, Yokai and the Bringing Them Home Committee to host two successful Carol Up Mary Bank reunions at the John Curtin Gallery. And as I mentioned in 2019, we took the collection to New York. Um, but since the, since the work has been on campus, it's really galvanised activity uh, within the university supporting the university's ambitions for reconciliation. And in many ways, it's, the collection itself has become the foundation of the development of the Carolup Centre for Truth-Telling, which I'm very happy to um, report was formally established by the Governor on the 10th of November last year at, at a very moving ceremony at the John Curtin Gallery. Now, this centre will not only become the new home, physical home for the Carolup artworks, but it will also enable us to build upon the collection to provide a comprehensive opportunities for community engagement, education and research, as well as all the hard work that needs to needs to happen to enable um, pathways to healing uh, for people, survivors and their descendants. Aboriginal experiences of dispossession and disempowerment resonate with experiences of indigenous populations across the world and as embodied in the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017, which, called, which was the call from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for constitutional reform in Australia, for acknowledgement of continued sovereignty and for a process of truth-telling of past injustices to assist in moving towards genuine reconciliation. So Colgate University's vision and generosity in returning these artworks to Noongar Buja has provided Curtin University with the unprecedented opportunity to reach out to all Australians, but especially to Noongar people, to promote truth-telling and work together to share, research and preserve these important artworks for future generations. And that's where I'm going to stop and I'm going to give over to Tony. How long was that? Is it, is that I don't know. Oh, Fifteen minutes. Okay. So you've only got five. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Um, Tony's going to provide, uh, I guess, um, um, a little bit of a different perspective from uh, from Chris's um, background and history and knowledge of the collection, which is actually quite astounding. And um, I'm very impressed, Chris, of the depth of knowledge um, around that collection. And um, I'm still learning lots. So I thought I'd be here today so uh, these guys um, can share their stories, and then I can ask them difficult questions. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. And just want to also acknowledge the elders past and present and also emerging, also acknowledge that we are on Wajak country of the Noongar Nation and um, acknowledge all the elders past and present in this community as well. I also like to acknowledge and pay my respects to all the stolen generation people um, right across this country and acknowledge those that have already gone before us um, because they've set the path pathway for us in this journey. Uh, I guess for me, Carolup, Carolup was, um, is a place where many, many of the Aboriginal people and the local Noongar people of the days uh, were, you know, sadly moved and forcibly moved to these locations because of ongoing issues or complaints from the wider community and the, the location of Katanning as well. Um, you're probably asking yourself, 
what's Carol Up mean to me? I guess Carol Up is, <coughs> the site itself has two names. So the first part of the journey is it's known as Carol Up Native Settlement and then later on it became known as the Maribank Baptist Mission. And that's where my journey starts. And, um, you know, I'm, and I want to look at the artworks and I think about it, you know, you look at all the, the people that went before us and uh, that were placed into this place, you know, sadly that they were isolated and segregated from their loved ones and their family and country and placed in a location that was unknown to them. But uh, throughout the, the engagement of Mr White and Mrs White, uh, we saw the beauty that rose from the darkness of and the evilness of um, A.O. Neville in, in terms of what he was trying to do with the Aboriginal people in this state. And I guess, you know, when you look at it, a lot of the Aboriginal kids that were placed in institutions like this, it um, very similar story, it was for their own good and we know today that it's not for their own good. And it hasn't been and we still see the ripple effect of that today in terms of Aboriginal children still entering the, the system and um, if it's not the institution of the Department of Child Protection, it's the institution of the prisons. So it's, um, you know, so it's sad because you look at it, um, lo loss, of loss of country, loss of identity and, you know, place in these institutions uh, wasn't a good thing for anybody and um, especially for the First Nations people of this country. I guess when I look back at the, the journey of Carol up is, um, you know, I'm grateful that I had a mother, my mother's sister was a part of that journey, sadly, but she was an artist that we didn't know about. And she um, was doing her own artworks with the boys during this period, which was amazing because she'd never ever spoken about her artworks or shared her stories with um, the wider family of our, of our family network, but let alone she didn't even share that with her own children. Um, and I guess, you know, just on that, it's exciting that, um, you know, Chris has come across some of her artworks that um, we are hoping to get our hands on so that we could show her children that are a part of the Carol Up Elders Reference Group so they can have a look at what their mother did in this place as well. I guess for me as a young bloke growing up um, back in 1970, which wasn't long ago, was the first time I uh, entered that place and I you know, sadly spent the next 15 years of my life in this institution. And I guess you know, some of the things about it growing up is boys always taught the other boys, the younger boys, what was important around the, the cultural significance of the location and a lot of that stuff was uh, knowing where the old people used to be, where the old people's stories were and also the importance of knowing where the old people were buried on this location. Because a lot of the local Noongar people didn't know that. A lot of the local Noongar people used to come out there to the property itself because it was 10,000 acres, people used to come out there hunting. And um, it was, you know, knowing those locations that were like the cemeteries and that, that was important for us to respect the old people that had gone before us. Um, being involved with the Carolop Elders Reference Group, it's um, for me. It's been a really, real blessing. It's been a, 
We've just been so humbled to be involved and to be a part of this journey and, and to reflect and always look back in the revision mirror to think about um, the brothers and sisters that did these amazing artworks and knowing that the most important thing that they were only kids, kids doing this work. They weren't adults, um, they didn't go to teaching schools, they were just natural at what they did and they had that... Um, they had the spirit, the wound stuck in them, and you know they carried that with them, and um, it was so important. Uh, and I guess you know when you look back at it today, is the the artworks have travelled right across the world, and it's a bit like us as Aboriginal people. We travel and we go to all different places, but when we die, we come back home to our budja, and that's our land and our country where we come from, and the artworks. I look at that as the same. They travelled, they've been to the UK, to the US, and now the lifetime expectance of that is over and they're back on country now resting. And the timing couldn't be any better because I think it's, um, it's a wonderful celebration to know that you know, there's only, there was only a few left of the artists and now we only have our sole... Um, and Elmer, that's the last living um, artist of the collection that's still with us today. So, you know, I think it's in terms of that journey for her and I guess for us as other young boys and girls growing up in the institution in a different era, it just, um, it's amazing to know that Annie Elmer can still see and have the opportunity to see the artworks and see her works that she did as a child as well. Um, and I guess, you know, it's just about advocating and speaking and sharing the knowledge with our Noongar people in the wider community so that the wider community gets the opportunity, just like we do, to see the artworks, to see the beauty in, in terms of what these kids have done over their, you know, the, the most difficult times of their life being placed in these places. And Carolup was in a place that, um, you know, wintertime it was very, very cold. We had no shoes. So I don't know what these kids had when they were growing up there. And I was growing up in the 70s. You know, cold weather, it was freezing. Hot weather was very hot. Um, but for me, it's, um, it's a place of significance. To me, it's, I always say it's my home. Um, it's the kids that I grew up with. They come first in my life. And then my mother's family and my father's family. And I always relate to these kids as my brothers and sisters and, and because we grew up and we spent so many years together in this place and, you know, it, it breaks one's heart when you see, see the, the mission kids slowly, one at a time, dying. Um, you know, they've never had any uh, healing or no opportunities to have counselling to address all those issues that they'd been faced with. And, you know, just to know that even just in the last few days that we've had another couple of members of the, the mission kids from that place have passed away, that have left us. And, you know, sad, it's, um, you know, people like myself, I'm lucky for whatever the reasons is, and I just say the resilience of me moving through all those challenges of um, my early childhood of growing up in this place that's uh, allowed me to be in this position uh, sadly, I guess if you look at many of those kids that grew up with us, is um, they didn't have the capacity 
They didn't have the skills, the strength. Uh, they became part of that ripple effect of being institutionalised again and moving from one door, swinging door into another institution, swinging door. And but I guess when I look at, you know, the artworks, you know, speaking to members of the families that have um, are descendants of these artists, you know, it just means so much for them to know that they're back on country. You know, I've been visiting so many of the, the descendants and, you know, you're sitting in the comfort of their home and they go, you know, I've got a piece of that artwork and I have it in my house. And, you know, they're just so humbled and blessed to know that their, uh, their uncles and aunties and, you know, their grandparents have, you know, led the way for them, opened that pathway for them to, to be excited about this, uh, about the artworks. I remember when Chris and I did a tour with children of the department that are in care. One of the little kids heard the artist's name and she looked at her carer and said, that's my name. And you could see the joy, the excitement, knowing that this is her descendant who's one of these artists. And she'd made that connection. Um, but it's, you know, sharing the stories, it's um, working closely with Curtin, working closely with the Elders Reference Group to ensure that we we maintain the artworks and, and preserve them as best as we can and continue to share the story around truth-telling. And I think for me personally, you know, truth-telling, if you're not going to tell the truth, it's not worth having the conversation. Um, I work for an organisation that is an institution. You know, Parkerville has got a history of 117 years and the matriarch of Parkerville was a lady by the name of Sister Cates. And Sister Cates later on formed her own um, institution dealing with only fair-skinned Aboriginal children over in Queen's Park. Um, so it's about, you know, it's difficult for some uh, institutions to have those conversations, but, you know, I'm so pleased in my space where I work is that one of our core values is truth-telling, and we need to tell the truth before we can start moving forward. And, um, you know being able to challenge each other and, and being brave about it as well because, you know, not, not a lot of people like to hear the truth and talk about the truth. And, um, you know, the opportunities that children had in the institutions in those days were very limited, very limited. You know, you never saw your family, you never had those community engagements with participating in uh, activities within your communities like our children do today. Um, how am I going on time? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll wait for some questions from Michelle. Okay. But sure. yeah, just I'm just so blessed time. to be involved. Oh, sorry. Thanks, Tony and Chris. Um, I guess before we throw it out to you guys to uh, ask some questions, um, I'd like to just throw a few questions to... Um, Tony and Chris, which um, will throw some more, I guess, uh, different dimensions on this story. Uh, for me, there are so many layers to this story and it, 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 the story is, this is only a, a tiny, what's presented today is a tiny uh, glimpse of the, the bigger story um, and what, what we know about the 
the children interned at, at Carolup and later Marybank. Um, there's also stories about what happened to those artists once they left and uh, we haven't got time to go into that today but um, a lot of it wasn't very good and uh, so we have to remind ourselves that um, this, the children are called, or the grown-ups um, like Tony and my mum, they're called survivors for a reason. Lots of children and babies died in those institutions and the kids that survived were pretty tough to even get through the first few years of their lives and um, even after they left those institutions um, as they were literally thrown um, into the community without any uh, life skills or support. Um, you know, it's just it's a one part of that very complex history which we're um, coming to terms with and unpacking and coming to terms with within our own community. But um, that conversation needs to be broadened so that we can talk openly and honestly about um, the history of our, our state and our country. Uh, so, Tony, um, I don't want to make your life more complicated, <laughs> but I thought you're the, you're the well-placed to um, answer this question. So, um, because um, there's, we seem, it seems like there's um, generally uh, a level of awareness out in their community about the stolen generations um, and from your perspective uh, why do we need to continue this conversation um, and what's you know not what's not so well known about this story I guess Michelle what um, I don't know if most of you guys and ladies have seen the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing report that was done 2018. And what it really clearly highlights is that this state is the worst state in this country. And as a kid growing up, I never knew that. I always thought, oh, Queensland and New South Wales might be worse off in terms of stolen gen. Um, but when you look at this state, um, we had 100 more institutions, 100 more. So then you've got to think about what's the purpose of that? What is, what is A.O. Neville's vision? What is he trying to do? Is he trying to breed out, breed out the Aboriginal race? Or is he trying to make the Aboriginal people be, be like white people? Because white people are deemed, to seem, or deemed in the community as this is the way of living. This is a better life for you. What also really stood out in that report is that 47% um, of Aboriginal people in this state are connected to the stolen gen. So that's nearly one and two. And when you look at that graph, there's a huge gap between the next one. And it's just so sad when you look at it, you think, wow, why aren't we teaching this stuff in the schools? Why, why isn't every young person learning about this in schools from a young age. And it's not about, um, for me, it's not about uh, 
blaming the blame game, but it's just about educating our, our systems and educating our wider communities so that we, we get a better understanding and, and we know what a large portion of these Aboriginal people have been through in this state. Um, you know, the work that I'm doing with the Healing Foundation at a national level is that we've just rolled out a educational education kit for all schools in the country. So it teaches kids at all different grades using the appropriate language so that children and teachers get a better understanding around the stolen generation people and the journey of, and the impact that it had on those people and their families. I think it's, you know, talking about it, um, you know, it's, it just really aligns with me that, um, you know, we've got to talk about it because these practices were still happening in the late 1980s. You know, even though the policies had changed, this state was still doing the same practice then. And people will say today that, you know, we've got another stolen generation happening. Um, and there's a lot more children come in, coming into care, which is, you know, which is true. Um, you know, since the, the bringing them home report, um, which had 50, 54 recommendations, there's only about five of those recommendations have been implemented, uh, and that's 20 years on. Um, we had a Royal Commission, and we've got over 100 and something recommendations, and every time I see these Royal Commissions and recommendations, in the back of my mind, I just think, you couldn't implement 54, how are you going to implement 100 and something? You know, you know, I guess if we worked tirelessly and hard to implement those 54, we wouldn't have the problems that we have today with the over-representation of Aboriginal children in care. Um, but my, my own, and it's my opinion, and I always say this, there's only one stolen generation, and that's the one that I grew up in. Michelle's mum grew up, and the other 100,000 children right across this country grew up in. The one that's, you know, the thing that's happening today is, you know, families do have an opportunity to come and sit at the table and talk with the department uh, around ensuring the best outcome for their children. I guess also you look at some of the practices of um, the system. The system hasn't changed much. You know, I always say to when I first walked into the department to work, I said, why would I want to work here? You know, you took me away from my mother, my family, my grandparents. But then I looked on the bright side of it and thought, I could be that person that could change people and make the system change a bit. You know, you can change the name on it many times as you like, but to us Aboriginal people, it will still be known as Native Welfare because you still have people that have still got that DNA in their system and they're still a part of the system and they're hidden away in the system that still make those decisions today on children. But I think it's, you know, it's important that we continue to talk about it and, and that's what it's about. It's about if we don't talk about it, how's the wider community going to learn? How's the Aboriginal people going to learn? How's the Aboriginal people and the wider community going to walk together, having a positive relationship and partnership so that we become one and we have that reconciliation, love and respect for each other and we walk this journey together and we advocate and we fight the fight to ensure that we continue to speak up about these policies. I th you know, like I heard the Premier the other day talking about a new cultural centre and, 
I mean, like I said, this state's the worst state and we don't even have a healing centre. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a number of healing centres where stolen generation people could come, share their stories, talk about it, or even just come and sit and listen to others and, you know, that they'll find that space and that comfort that they'll be empowered to start to talking and sharing their stories. I mean, we're doing a little bit of that work in, the, in bringing them home space is, you know, we're bringing elders together to talk about their stories and share their stories because husbands and wives are saying, you've got to tell your story. We don't know your story. You die tomorrow, your story's lost. Your children, your grandchildren need to know your story. And, you know, credit to those elders, they're coming to the table. They're sharing their stories because they want their children and grandchildren to have those stories when they, when they leave this world and that, you know, the stories are not lost. Very similar to the artworks. Thanks, Tony. And I might just quickly add to that. Um, uh, I mean, I'm still learning about my own family's story and, and my mum's family, her story and uh, her brother's story who was uh, stolen on the same day uh, but placed in a different institution based on the difference in colour between me and Tony. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been sent to Sister Kate's and Tony was probably sent to Roland's or Magumba mm. and then we were given different names and uh, so, you know, I think it's all the details that you, unless you really understand what happened, I've got a copy of my mother's uh, a form for arrest. She was six years old. So that was a form to arrest a six-year-old child to be kept at Her, Her Majesty's pleasure. So basically that was the form that the police were issued to take to the station to legally uh, grab the kids. Um, we still need these conversations to happen. Um, the film that we made with Mum, the oral history, um, fantastic philanthropists came on board to support that film program. And even after showing the film, um, only just understood at that point um, that there was legislation around stolen generation. Now these were very rich, very kind, very well educated uh, people from Perth um, who had, you know, quite a bit younger than me um, that didn't understand um, that the stolen generation actually was, uh, you know, legally enforced um, with, uh, through legislation. So, you know, if we don't have that level of awareness yet and um, even for our, our own families learning what impact. The first time I went to Roland's mission was only a couple of years ago where my mum's brother was sent and I learned a story there um, that I'd never heard before which freaked me out and that was, you know, on his 16th birthday uh, he was basically told to leave um, with the, the clothes that he was standing on with in, no money, no shoes, nowhere to go, no job. You know, and you wonder why our mob ended up in prison. Was actually safer in prison than being out of prison. In, in you know, for for some people, um, 
that you know it, like those personal stories are really important because then you can put yourself in people's shoes and understand that level of you know degradation i guess and um disempowerment no wonder we got you know our mob need some healing um but the whole country needs healing because mm. uh, we're we, you know we're all part of this story this is all part of our story you know my dad was a wadula he also feared his children being stolen so it didn't only affect black fellas um just on that yes just on that i'll just say that um you know there was that was just an indictment on aboriginal people as kids mm. they had a criminal record mm. when they were taken away you know i was sharing with one of the guys tonight I grew up in an institution known my surname was one name. When I went to get my birth certificate, they said, that's not your real name. And these men that are still alive today in New South Wales, when they entered an institution, they lost their identity and were given a number, never to speak their name again. And can you imagine if they slipped their name out accidentally, what the punishment would be? And these are people that are still alive today. But part of that truth-telling is, you know, it's about going to these locations, having memorials, so that people in the community and the, as we travel, we see these stories and we learn more about them. And that was one, one I guess, one positive thing in New South Wales, where the Kinchler boys and the Cootamundra girls, their final destination was a train station. And on that train station today, they have a big memorial to acknowledge all those children that left that station to go to these institutions. Thanks, Tony. You're going to make me cry soon. Um, no. <laughs> uh, Chris, okay. Do I have a question for you? Chris, um... Why do you think it's important that Australia's institutions facilitate truth-telling? Uh, I personally think that um, every institution has a responsibility to build their business upon truth-telling. Um, now, again, Having worked at Curtin for the number of decades I have, um, having the kind of joy of working within an art gallery, working with artists who, um, many of whom I have specifically sought out to work with because their practice is built around intervening with social convention and um, um, a commitment to truth-telling. So in my own situation at Curtin University, it's, I've, I mean, it's taken a long time and there's still a lot of people within the institution who are kind of nervous about the truth, but I've seen with my own eyes in the last 10 years the kind of transformation that people's... When people are willing to... Um, let go of that fear of, of what the truth may reveal or, or, or how it may impact upon them personally. Um, and that's why the 
this collection, the Carolup collection, has, has enabled many people to to be confronted with a series of horrific truths in a way that, I mean, as you walked around the, your gallery before, you were talking about lulling us into a... Like the way you call it my gallery? Yeah, well, <laughs> I consider it your I'm gallery. I'm claiming it. <laughs> I consider it your gallery. Um, but that same thing, the way that space is designed, you kind of, you bring people in, you're not, you're not sort of, you're not throwing a, a, a bucket of hot water in their face at the entrance. You, you, you bring people in and you enable people to feel comfortable with where they are and then you just slowly reveal these really um, difficult realities that people find confronting. Um, but getting back to the, your question, I, I think it's a, I think it's a moral responsibility of, of, of any institution that is dealing with with um, disseminating information and knowledge and educating, um, as universities do, where, where I work. It, I, I, I personally cannot imagine them building their business around anything other than a foundation of truth telling, and yet it really is very recently something that's being discussed and talked about. Um, so I'm, I'm glad it's finally happening, but um, I, I just can't imagine a future without it. Mm. And um, this could be to both of you or, or, or one. Uh, once the truth is out there, uh, what do you think the next steps are? Possibly Tony, if you want to respond to that one first. And then I think we'll put it out. Once we cover this one, we'll invite a couple of questions. I think, the, I think what you hear quite often as an Aboriginal person is the comment, get over it, move on. That happened years ago. But I guess when you look at trauma and our trauma is embedded in people's lives, it goes through people's DNA and into generations. Um, so, for, you know, I think the truth is, um, I hope that one day, and I look and I honestly believe that most, most Australians are walking with Aboriginal people on this journey. You know, it's like, a, it's like an apple tree, there's a few rotten apples, but we get that. Um, we just, we, I guess we just need to encourage you guys and ladies here tonight that you need to be brave, you need to stand up against any of this stuff that you hear um, in your networks, in your families, in your communities. I mean, I run training at my workplace and we've got about 170 staff. And there's an elderly gentleman there, he said to me, he said, I thought I knew it all. He said, but once I've done your training, I was so empowered that I wanted to fight the fight and walk the walk with you. And I always put on my, my Aboriginal shirt, he said, the one that you designed for our organisation. So when I go and have barbecues with all my mates, my white mates, he goes, they all look at me funny way with this shirt. And he said, that's when the fight starts. It's because I just get stuck into them. But then I start, I change their minds and their views. They start to think about what, what he's sharing with them. And, and I think that's what it's about, is that we become brave. And that's what reconciliation is, 
the mission and the, the, the voices for this year. Be brave. Um, you know, along the way, we're going to challenge friends, family, and we're going to lose a few of those people too. But that's what it's about. It's about being brave and saying, we've had enough. We want to walk together in unity and harmony. We want to have the truth being, being taught in our schools. Why, why are all of our kids learning all different languages at school when we should be learning the Aboriginal language? We're the oldest living cultural group in the world. I mean, like Chris and I went to America, and I must admit, in that symposium, you could feel, I reckon you could cut the air with a knife. It was just so powerful. But the respect from the, the First Nations people there, that they made a big fuss of us, and, and I'm looking at myself as the Aboriginal man going, but I'm only an Aboriginal man, you know, it's, um, it's okay. I'm on your country, but the way they valued us and respected us as a community in Hamilton that evening, it was just amazing. And I think that's, you know, that's how we've got to do it. Truth-telling is putting it out there, sharing it with your mates and, and bringing friends with you. And, you know, you're going to lose a few along the way, and that's okay. Um, and they're the conversations I have to have with my own family members and, and have those truths told. And, you know, sometimes you're not going to like... Most Aboriginal people, well, not I wouldn't say most, but I'd say there'd be quite a few Aboriginal people if I told them that the most disadvantaged people in this country today are the stolen gen, they'd come back at me and go, but all Aboriginal are disadvantaged. And I'd go, yeah, they are, but the most disadvantaged people are the stolen gen. And the report says that. Thanks, Tony. Chris, do you have something to add? Reasonably briefly to that. Um, no, not really. Okay, no. thank Just, you. I hope there's some questions from mm. the dance. from the nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some dance music coming pretty soon. Oh, good. Uh, okay, so do we have a roving mic, or have we? Um, it's not that huge, but Let, let's ask everyone some, to some ask some people. One some people are, are quietly spoken. Um, any, does anyone want to ask any of us uh, a question, which is just one question Thank you. at um, a time? I think I'm asking this to Chris, but I might be asking it to you, I'm not sure. Um, when I look at the artwork, I can see, like you said this is done by children, but, and you said they weren't taught. So I'm looking at it and there's like a very, um, just, it looks Western. Um, um, there's perspective, there's sort of looking at things from side on. So what was going on? How come these kids were drawing in a Western style? I mean, their task was to... I mean, when they did these drawings, their task was to be in the landscape and observe and come back into the classroom as Adi Edith mentioned in the, in the film, with a memory of what they saw and draw what they saw. Now, these children are growing up in a, um, and attending this school like any other child in, in the state. I mean, the Carrollup State School was just a school. It's like Doubleview Primary School that I went to school in the 60s. 
but this one just happened to be within a prison camp in Carolup Native Settlement. So everything else that they were being taught in the school was just the same as every other child was being taught. Now, when they're in the landscape being asked to observe the landscape and then depict the landscape, I mean, this is exactly what, what they saw. So in a way, what, what we refer to as a Carolup, and in some ways it's be, you know, become the Carolup School of Art or, or a kind of um, a genre or a, or a movement, it's a, it's, a, it's a school of realism. I mean, these are, you know, this one in particular. Um, the visual acuity that these children had seemed to have as, as, a, as a natural attribute sets them apart from most other children, particularly non-Aboriginal children of a similar age. When you compare these drawings to other 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old children from mm -hmm. any school in the state, none of them look anything like this. Mm -hmm. You're thinking as opposed to an Aboriginal No, I artwork. guess what I'm trying to say is I know that Noongar art was decimated, um, Noongar traditional style. Was, you know, these kids, if they're painting in a Western style, does that mean that their traditional style was a more realism-based or have they lost, lost their original traditional style? What, what was going on? I'd, I'd probably ask Michelle to jump in at this point. I honestly no. don't know much about a tra traditional... Yeah, I can't really speak on behalf of Noongar people because I'm not Noongar, but I would suggest that um, with every uh, tradition um, which... Um, has come from so many thousands of years of um, of history, is is ongoing, and um, it, our our cultures are dynamic, and therefore they change, but they bring along with it our our cultural values and um, perspectives, and story, and so for me I don't see this as as different, it might look different in style, but for me, it still holds um, the, you know, the the beauty of of um, the. And this is an expression, you know, these are the, an expression from those children at that time. Um, and you could look around anywhere in Australia, and contemporary Aboriginal artists, uh, you, you know, their their expressions are so diverse. Um, but we're we're talking about a classroom over you know kids, several years, um, where you've got the same teacher teaching um, you know observation, and that's what I'd say about Aboriginal people is the power of observation from living in uh, in in the bush um, of nature is phenomenal. Um, you know, this is how we survived, our, the powers of observation, um, how animals, uh, the behaviours of animals, um, that was, that's how, that was a life and death. Um, it was a survival technique to know how animals moved, how, how they, you know, where they slept and, you know, their, their, their behaviours and uh, we needed those powers of observations. That's why we survived this long. But um, dare I say, you know, we got the greatest footballers. 
and sports people on that, you know, with that in that similar vein, because you can watch things and know. Oral, we had an oral tradition, and um, a part of that tradition was also passing on knowledge through art uh, and ceremony, but with art as well. And that's all part of this ongoing dynamic um, culture that survives still today and part of our storytelling. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask a little bit more about the Centre for Truth Telling and the vision for that centre. It's really um, incredible to hear that that, that centre is being planned and, um, like you're saying, Tony, really important and necessary that, that, that those centres are happening as well as cult just cultural centres. Um, so I just wanted to hear a little bit more about um, what kinds of things will happen at that centre if it's... Um, if there's practical support services for people or whether it's focused on sharing or just, yeah. Shall I respond to that or? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll give my impression anyway. Um, I mean, it, it's very early days in, in, in some ways and it really, at this stage, is centred around, um, around this collection, the Carolot collection, but the university, Curtin University, sees it as the very first step in a much, much broader project that involves the entire university, not just the art gallery. Um, it involves all faculties. Um, and, you know, the, the very first step is, is the kind of step of, of, of truth-telling, and, it, and it's, it's embraced very much as, a, as an instrument that will enable the university to advance its ambitions to, in, in its wrap, so for, to re reconciliation is the goal, and there are many, many ways to get to that goal. Um, so, it, in some ways, although it's we're taking small steps, and I mean, it's, it, this will be a major facility, and um, not only being a physical home where people can come and see, come and see the collection, it's we're wanting to develop a, a space, a, a place that Aboriginal people feel safe in, and it's a if I can talk in sort of more broad general terms, it's a space where we want um, exchange to occur. And so for people to come, that's an interesting sound, isn't it? Um, for people to come from community um, and feel as though they can, I mean, it's their space that they can feel they can come and stay in this space. And so one of the things that uh, although Michelle's only been with us for a little while, um, talking about cultural safety. And um, I mean, that's one aspect that we're very keen to tackle um, even before the centre opens, which we're, we imagine will be at the end of 2023. We have another space which we have access to for the next couple of years where we are kind of, we'll be experimenting and rolling out different um, programs and exhibitions, etc. Um, just seeing what, seeing what works and experimenting with, with different ways of doing things to, to try to, working with community, working with the elders and the Caradoc Elders Reference Group. Um, but eventually I see this centre as being um, a much broader, much more inclusive um, and dealing with truth-telling right throughout the university. 
um, all aspects of university business. And that's a pretty exciting space, mm. but it's it's pretty enormous. Yeah, I can. Um, I just wanted to say something too about broadening, like the value of broadening the, these conversations into the broader community. Yes, it's really important for our mob to have the opportunity to tell their stories. Uh, but what we also see is that we are, and partly with. Um, my gallery downstairs, creating safe spaces for difficult conversations in this country is, um, is really, really important. And we can't underestimate um, the importance of that. And I'll just give you a little example of when, again, I'll go back to Mum's film and this little old lady came up to me afterwards, Wadula lady, she's 75. And she said, oh, Michelle, how old's your mum? I said, oh, 75. She said, oh, I'm 75. And she said, oh, oh, I've never told anyone this ever and you're the first person. And I thought, oh, oh here we go. And uh, she said, I connected with your mum's story because when I was five years old, my parents owned a station in a remote part of the Kimberley and her parents sent her to Perth to boarding school. And she freaked out and she said, oh, you know, the longing for her family. So she connected. And for her to hold on to that for 70 years since she was a little girl and telling me as a first person, well, A, that puts a lot of responsibility on me, but it's like how unbelievable, you know. She's held on to that pain and that hurt and she hasn't been disadvantaged like our mob, I don't think, but it allowed her to speak her truth. The fact that this was a conversation and opened up and um, we were in that space and she, for the first time, she needed healing. You know, she needed to express that and, and be at peace with that. Um, so it's really, really important that we are able to share these stories and for the broader... No, the country itself, which needs healing. We need decolonisation. This country needs decolonisation. And something that really impressed me was the governor of New South Wales a couple of years ago at the um, Sydney Opera House when I saw a beautiful show there called Spin Effects Gum. And uh, he's no longer governor, but David Hurley at the time. And it stuck with me and I wrote it down. This was a black fella talking to him who said... Our culture is your culture, but because you don't know our culture, therefore you don't know your own culture. So it's, we've got a lot to share. Embrace these incredible, beautiful cultures that Aboriginal people are willing to share with the rest of Australia because this is, you know, be proud of, you know, being on a country which can trace its history more than 60,000 years Incredible. Nowhere else. Nowhere else will that happen. I think also when you look at the work that's going on at Curtin is there's a number of things happening and I think the centre itself could be the, the major hub for all these institutions where you could just have a little section that talks about Sister Kate's, Parkerville, Magumba more um, Unorcia, 
because I think over the last couple of years we've seen so many survivors come through from all different institutions because they feel safe. They see people like myself and others leading the way. They know that people like Chris, <coughs> in the form of Vice-Chancellor, um, respected them and valued them and really wanted to sit down and listen to their stories. And I think if, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great if that we can get every institution in Noongar country first, and then we could do it right across the state within that um, new centre. And just having a small section that just talks briefly about the key details of each institution, I think that's, you know, for me, that's, um, that'll just mean so much because it's so authentic, it's so real, it's so true. It's a hub you can come and learn straight away and get all this knowledge. Um, because we're, we're already doing virtual reality of these institutions. Some of the survivors don't want to go back to these institutions, and that's okay. But we're lucky we have these, and they can sit in the comfort of their homes with their grandchildren and talk about their stories while looking at other, other survivors' stories as well. And relive those, that journey, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, um, and I think you know doing that virtual reality stuff is is amazing because Curtin is leading that way with the Noongar people, and we're the only group of doing it in this country. Thank you. Uh, it's seven o'clock now. Does anyone have a burning, pressing? Yep. Hello, Tony. Hi, it's Adam. Uh, it wasn't a question. I was going to help to, uh, to, to close um, the sessions when you're ready. Okay. So, and if you're, if you're happy for me to do that. Sure. Yeah. 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 Thank Definitely. You. Thank you so much, Michelle. Tony, Peter, thank you. That was amazing. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming along tonight. Um, it's my great pleasure, as uh, most of you know, um, that uh, to be the chair of the Museum of Freedom and Tolerance, you know, a museum of no walls, but a museum of lots of conversations, and it's at the very heart of our DNA is to help to um, make these invisible stories visible within our society, and, um, and we really thank you for the work that you do and encourage you to keep doing it and um, look forward to helping you on that journey. So thank you so much. Put your hands together and, uh, and thank our panellists.